morning, everyone. Just want to uh, give a plug for that Utah trip, especially for you families out there, dads especially. This is a great time to be with your sons and daughters. I've gone out there with my kids numerous years, and it's been great just sharing the gospel on the streets. To do that with your children is a wonderful time. You get trained to do it. And let's be honest, there's nobody nicer, there's no easier way to cut your teeth than talking to Mormons, right? They're not going to take a swing at you. They're not going to spit at you. So it's a great place to introduce yourself to the sometimes terrifying experience of sharing your faith. And it's a great context. You get trained. You get to know all kinds of people from our church. I've done it now, I think, four years, and we've just, we've, I've loved it. My kids love it. So I want to encourage you, if you're looking for something to do with your family this summer, and you're just tired of the typical vacations, Disneyland, Grand Canyon, Paris, come on already. This is something you're going to want to do, right? So, And you can't beat the price. I think it's like $300 a person or something. And you just get to hang out with everyone for 24 hours a day. It's, it's wonderful. So uh, if, you've, if you've closed your Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 2. Um, we're studying, we're picking up our study again in the book of Romans. We've been studying this book from mid-February, and in the last couple of weeks, it's been broken up a little bit. We had our missions conference, and then we jumped back into Romans, and then we had Palm and Easter Sunday, and so now we're back into Romans again. We'll be in for a couple weeks, and then we go into Mother's Day, and then we're back into Romans, and then we're going to go through the rest of Romans, at least up through chapter 4, where there's a really good, significant break in the thought of the book of Romans. Um, now, last year, if you recall, we studied straight through the book of Revelation without taking any kind of breaks for Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, or Mother's Day, um, and, and that was really important because in a really difficult book like that, you needed that kind of consistency, and, and the upside of that was that for people who sometimes only come to church, say, on Easter or on Mother's Day, Mother's Day, if you didn't know, is one, one of the highest church attendance Sundays that there are next to Easter, for people who typically only come to church on those Sundays, they got to hear an entirely different message. So on Easter last year, it was Revelation chapter 2. On Mother's Day, it was Revelation chapter 6. Now, now the downside is that uh, last Mother's Day, the topic was the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So not, not the best way to say, I love you, Mom, but, 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 but I guess the, I, what I'm trying to communicate is that here at Christ Community Church, generally speaking, every other year, we, we will recognize these special dates and make that Sunday all about that date, but also have the conviction that God's Word, no matter what part of it you might be in, it is simply good just to continue to study through it, trusting that God can use His Word, even maybe Obadiah, for people who are visiting with us. And so that's a practice that we, we partake in. What that means is, on years where we recognize those special Sundays, we need to kind of do a little bit of a recap to get us back into the flow of whatever book we happen to be studying. So this morning, this right now, is a little bit of that kind of recap as we're going through the book of Romans. Now, several weeks ago, uh, we, we went to the thesis of the book of Romans. I said it was Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and because, the reason being is it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And then Paul then launched into uh, really a gospel presentation. You remember that the book of Romans is is the only what I call non-occasional book that Paul wrote. In other words, he wasn't writing to address a particular situation or circumstance, and so he's writing to show how you apply the gospel to it, which is how almost all the epistles are written. 
He, he, he wrote to the Romans, hoping to meet them one day. He didn't plant the church, but he wanted to make sure that they understood the gospel in its entirety. And so the book of Romans is, in, any, in some sense, the, the only, if I can say that way, theology from pure theology that the apostle Paul has written to us. And, and so he's presenting the gospel. He says, here it is. It's the power of God for salvation. And then he launches into a gospel presentation, which is really the remainder of the book, as well as the implications of that gospel. And, and in, instructive for us, he doesn't start with, hey, Jesus will make your life better and all those kinds of things, which we typically hear in the modern church. Jesus is good mojo. He'll help you out kind of thing. No, he actually goes into a very lengthy exposition of God's wrath, God's judgment against humanity. So, because the reality is, until you know that you need a Savior, you're not going to love the Savior. Until you know the bad news, it's not really good news. And so, what Paul has done is launched into the bad news. So, as way of reminder, this is what we've been kind of looking at for the past several weeks. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul finished the chapter by talking about God's judgment upon the immoral and um, irreligious of the day, Right? And then as he got into chapter 2, he talks about God's judgment on the religious and the moral people of the day. And then today, in chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 8-ish, it's God's judgment on the Jew. And then next week, when we conclude this section, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, it's then God's judgment on everyone, right? So you can see that, that nobody is missed here. What, what Paul is effectively doing is trying to cut off any argument from any angle, religious, irreligious, moral, immoral, Jew, Gentile, any possible idea that somehow on that day of reckoning, we're going to be okay, that somehow I'll be able to get a pass. And Paul has been covering all the angles. This morning is a, kind of continu is a continuation from about three weeks ago when we talked about why religion isn't enough. And I gave you three reasons why religion isn't enough. And this morning, I want to add two more reasons why religion isn't enough. Number one, because it's easily confused with ritual, not repentance. And number two, religion isn't the same as a changed heart. So that's kind of the flow of where we've been coming from. I want to get you back up to speed. That's what we're thinking about. And I want you to notice now, you should be in Romans chapter 2, Paul is directly addressing the Jews who, who more than likely were converts to the Christian faith in the Roman church. We know that because look at chapter 2, verse 17. He says it, but if you call yourself a Jew, and then at chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew or what value is circumcision? So we know that Paul is specifically talking to the Jews and not just everybody in the church as he did uh, when we were in this passage about three weeks ago. Because you can look at the text in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, just generic man. And in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man? So he's clearly talking to everybody, and then now he's zeroing in onto the Jews within the church. So now while there's going to be some specific issues that are very Jewish in nature, for example, uh, circumcision, that whole conversation in verses 25 to 29, there's going to be a lot of overlap for us as well, right? So let's take a look at them one at a time. Religion isn't enough because it can be confused with ritual, not repentance. And notice as we begin, Paul is addressing roughly seven or eight uh, 
aspects that would give Jewish confidence and their identity. You can look at there starting in verse 7. He does this in 17 to 21. Number one, you're, you're a Jew, right? That's significant. You're the chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. You are Jew, and you rely on the law. You are not only the chosen people, descendants of Abraham, you are the ones who have the law of God. And as a result of that, he says, you boast in God. And they had every reason to boast in God. Of all the people, God chose them, and of all the people, God gave them the law. And they were proud of that. And as a result of having the law, verse 18 and 19 tells us, they knew the will of God, and they could approve what is excellent because of the law. This was a, a huge source of pride, and, 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 and I don't mean that to sound like bad. I always talk about pride, but, but they were proud that God had chosen them and gave them His Word. Keep your finger in Romans. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This was not lost on them. The privilege to be Jewish was not lost on them. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 7. Moses is, is kind of re-again re affirming what it means to be the people of God, and this is what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? Verse 8, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Right, so you, you got to know that in Paul's mind, he's thinking this, this was clear, in the Jewish mind, what great nation can boast that Yahweh is their God? What great nation can boast they've got these righteous laws like we have? This was a clear sign of something they were proud of, and it endeared them, right? And then back to, back to Romans chapter 2, so, so you're a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. Verse 19, and then he uses these three titles, your guides to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, and then he kind of even un unpacks that a little bit more, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, a pretty impressive resume. This is what it was to be a Jew. And did you notice, by the way, some of you Bible scholars might have recognized the sound of this, the last three statements that Paul talks to them, in particular, being guides to the blind, uh, being those who, uh, a light to the darkness and instructors to the foolish, those were three specific titles that the Lord said in the Old Testament in Isaiah what the servant of the Lord would be and do. Here it is, Isaiah chapter 42. I am the Lord. I've called you, speaking of His people in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then a few chapters later in Isaiah... I will make you as a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Friends, what do these three things, a guide, a light, an instructor, share in common? Hope. Hope. If you've ever been lost, you know the hope when you find a guide that will get you unlost. When you're in darkness, 
and you can't find your way, when you do not know and you need help, to have a guide, to have light, to have an instructor brings hope. That's what God says, my servant will be to the world without this. That is what my people, the servants of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, that is what the people of God are supposed to do for the world that has no hope. We are that hope. And secondly, these things all share in common an outward focus. There's not an inward focus. The light is good for those who need the light, not for the light itself. A guide is no good unless he's guiding someone or she's guiding someone. An instructor has to teach. That's what they do. They exist for others. Friends, our Christian witness is the strongest when we get out of our head that our life is not about our life but that we are to be something for others, and that's what the people of God have always done. It has not changed. There we saw in the Old Testament, Jesus says it in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city set on a hill. One of the reasons our church sits where it does is because the people who founded this church, there was nothing in this area, zero, They wanted to put a church right on the top of this hill, right on Castle Hill, so everyone could see the church, because they knew we don't exist for ourselves, we exist for those around us, so that the world can see the kingdom of God breaking in with all of its promise and its potential. This was God's, God's plan has always been that His people be the primary witness to this world, to show what life is like under his good rule, under his good word, right? That's exactly what Deuteronomy 4 was talking about. We're under your rule, your presence, and we're under your word, your promises. Life is great. And it hasn't changed. That's what the church is today. This is why how we live together matters, not just how Ben lives, not just how Fred lives, but how Christ's community church lives because we are all a people, not just a collection of individuals. This is God's plan from the beginning. And the implication that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 2 is that they were not living as these guides, as these lights, as these instructors, instructors that God intends. Now look at verse uh, was it 21 and following. Talks about them, uh, you know, teaching against stealing, preaching against stealing, but do you steal? Don't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? And those uh, make are pretty easy, straightforward, right? We looked at those last week that Paul's kind of riffing off of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. It may not be the external action, but, but are you, you may not be murdering somebody, but are you angry with them? You, not be, you may not be committing adultery, but are you lusting in your heart, taking it to the heart? So those make sense. And then, and then Paul throws this really obscure reference, you abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? What in the world is that going on? What's he referring to? Probably, it could be. And, and if, you've, if you came to Christ and became overzealous, you can understand this. There was a belief that some Jews were stealing, robbing pagan idols, and burning them down, melting them down, because there's no such thing as idols, and so they would melt them down, and then uh, some of them would turn around and sell those precious metals on the market and make a profit. So whatever good intentions they might have had in like getting rid of these idols, it kind of got tainted by the fact that they were now selling the precious metals to make some money. And I get that, right? Overzealous Christians can do things that are sometimes maybe not the wisest, 
I remember when I was a forklift driver for Time Warner Video, um, I was in charge of what's called the hand pack category where we spent special, special videos to special customers. And I remember getting all the new age and the occult and the astrology videos coming through. And since I ran the department and I would make sure no one was around, I would like change the addresses. I know, not supposed to do this. I would change the addresses to obscure places in like Vietnam or Alaska. And I would send all these videos out there. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing my, my role as a, as a witness. And I called my pastor, and he rightly rebuked me, right? I got rebuked a lot. He says, Rick, I appreciate your zeal, but good intentions is not a substitute for being a wise, winsome ambassador of the gospel. You can't be doing that kind of stuff. Needless to say, I got rebuked a lot. So whatever the case is, and maybe that's what's happening here, we're not quite sure. Whatever the case, however, in verse 24, look at what Paul says. As, for as it is written, so let me back up to verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Interesting, but verse 24 gets really interesting. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's what's interesting about it. The quotation that Paul quotes from the Old Testament and in your Bibles, it, it probably says it, Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. In those passages, it ascribes the blasphemy of God's name not so much to Israel's particular sin, but to the condition of the people of God who are now living in exile, which the, the, the understanding is it leads the nations to question whether or not God exists or if He's even good. Let me unpack that because this is really important. There's a distinction here that I think is really important. It's, it's, it's the Gentiles, Paul saying, they're not blaspheming, blaspheming the name of God because of the disobedience of your lives, although that would be certainly something that people can say, and, and we understand that. When we're saying one thing but doing another, we get called hypocrites, right? And that ruins our credibility. But what Paul is saying is that the Gentiles are blaspheming the name of God because of the disordered chaos that your lives are in. In other words, Paul seems to be getting to the fact that your lives are not much different than the Gentile lives. Your lives are a train wreck as much as their lives are a train wreck. You're committing adultery, you're stealing, you're taking idols and burning them and selling them up. The only difference between you and them is that you got different gods than they do. I guess the point I'm trying to get at is, friends, when we commit, when we say we shouldn't do certain things and then we do those very things, yes, our credibility is ruined. We're called a hypocrite. But what Paul is getting at is something a little bit more subtle and therefore important. And Paul is saying is, look, when your lives are just as much of a train wreck, when your marriages are just as train wrecked as the marriages in the world around you, when your value system is very little different than the value system of the world around you, what are the people around you going to say? Your coworkers, your friends, your children will say, look, there's no difference between you and I. You just have different gods than I have. Your gods are Jesus and the Holy Spirit and, 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 and God the Father. Christ, there's, there's only one, but that's what they're saying. And they're saying, my gods are me, myself, and I. But there's really no difference. And when you think about it, that's true. 
if we're living lives that on the surface may look religious, we have the rituals and the practices, but when you scratch below the surface, the very substance of our lives aren't much different. Husbands aren't loving their wives like Christ loved the church. Wives are not following their husbands like the church follows Christ. And we make comparisons and we, we chase the mighty dollar so we can get better homes and better vacations and, and, and have more leisure time, but we're not using our lives effectively for the kingdom. The world watches that and says, well, why should I believe in your God? Because your God's not much more different than my God. And that's challenging. Because it's one thing for me to be told, hey, you say this and you don't, you're a hypocrite. I got to take that. I'm a sinner. I get that. But it's another for someone to look at my life and say, your life's a train wreck. God must not be real. Now his credibility is on the line. In other words, Deuteronomy 4 says, Moses says, what people have God himself with them and the righteous laws given to them? And yet, if we're not availing ourselves to God and His person and His beauty and His character and His majesty, and we're not taking His Word and integrating it with the way I'm fathering or husbanding or being an employer or an employee or a citizen, it's a joke. And we're not much different than the world. And the world says, look, God must not be real because your life is as messed up as mine. That's a challenge, and there's a, there's a little bit of a rebuke there that I think we all have to own. That doesn't mean our marriages are perfect. I don't want us to go into a, a, a condition where we're all pretending to be righteous. That would miss the point. The point Paul is driving at, the point Moses was saying is, God's pretty awesome, and His Word is righteous. What are you doing to dive into both of those things? Because if it's just surface, your life's going to be like every other Gentile out there, and they're going to blaspheme God. You get the point. Alexander the Great, one of the great military generals of the world, this was, uh, I think he conquered the then-known world in his, by his early 30s. One night, couldn't sleep, so he walked around his encampment, around the campgrounds, and in the distance, he saw one of the soldiers asleep on post. The punishment for that was very severe, so Alexander the Great walks up to him. The young man wakes up because he hears Alexander coming, and he sees who it is, and he gets nervous, and Alexander looks at him and says, soldier, do you know what the penalty is for falling asleep on post? Sir, very severe. What is your name? The young man says, Alexander, sir. What is your name? Alexander the Great asks a second time. Alexander, sir, he says a little bit more meekly. What is your name? Alexander, sir. And then Alexander looked, the Great looks him right in the eye and says, Soldier, either change your name or change your conduct. Friends, the Jews were, were breaking covenant with God. They were not keeping their covenant with God to be His witnesses to the world because they weren't keeping the law and living the law in their lives. And here's the thing. The reason they could uh, um, reconcile this inconsistency is because they simply held on to the ritual act of circumcision, which was the symbol or sign of being part of the Abrahamic covenant which Paul says in verses 25 and 29, has no value by itself. Which is why in chapter 3, verse 1, they were like, they asked these two questions, well, then what advantage is there of being a Jew or of circumcision has no value? What does it really matter? Because ritual acts are not the same thing as repentance. 
but religious practices can make us think we're okay because we're participating in some external work that's supposed to be reflective of some internal change. For the Jew, it was their circumcision. For others, it's their baptism. For still others, it's the fact that when they were 10 years old, they made some kind of confession of faith. For others, it's the fact that they do the rosary or practice the liturgy at Mass. For others, it's because they have a membership in a local church. But friends, the forms are never a substitute for the actual function. And what Paul is saying here, what, Paul, what these verses teach us, friends, if the Jewish forms of religion will not count for anything on Judgment Day, then no religious forms will count on Judgment Day. That's pretty significant. What Paul is saying is that if the religious forms count for nothing, then if Jewish religious forms don't count for anything, then no other religious forms will count for anything. That's a pretty severe statement. Paul says here that these forms have value only if you are also obeying the law because that obedience shows a genuine repentance, and that is the function of the law, to change our orientation, our values, our desires, our, our, our mindsets, our hopes, our dreams, Godward. In other words, a changed heart, which is the second reason religion isn't enough. See, in verse 25 to 29, there's all this talk that Paul throws in about circumcision. It's the first time he brings it up in the book of Romans. We need to kind of talk about what that means. So let me explain it by way of analogy. The symbol that we use to show our participation in the things of God and the people of God is baptism, right? And as, ba as symbols go, baptism is pretty effective. We're lowered into the grave with Christ. The water is kind of the grave. We're washed clean, and then we're raised up new in Christ. So baptism is a pretty effective to show the regenerative work that takes place in the gospel. Now, I know it sounds really odd to us, but circumcision was the sign of the covenant of being in God's people in the Old Testament, Right? Don't think about it for too long, but that was the sign of, I mean, imagine that today. You want to join the church? Okay, just need to be circumcised. <laughs> Whoa, hey, man, no way. Now, we need to talk about circumcision and significance. So if you have your Bibles, go to Romans, excuse me, Genesis 17. And Genesis 17, I'm going to read a little bit from that. The Abrahamic covenant, which really is the, the kind of arc of the story of Genesis, Obviously, there's a lot that happens besides the Abrahamic covenant, but up until chapter 12, where the Abrahamic covenant is introduced, and then in chapter 15, it's ratified. Chapter 17, we'll look at now, it gets amended, and then it's confirmed in chapter 22. So from chapters 12 to 22 in the book of Genesis, the, the main arc is the Abrahamic covenant. It is the backbone that drives the story of the entire book of Genesis. Coming up to Abraham, we know the story of creation and humanity's fall into sin and the wickedness, and there's no hope, and all of a sudden, Abraham's on the scene. In Genesis 12, God makes covenant with him, and then after Genesis 22, everything spins out based on the Abrahamic covenant, okay? That's how important this is. So this, here we are at Genesis 17 at the amendment of the covenant, and I want you to listen carefully. I'm going to read these 11 verses. When Abram, excuse me here, what do I got? 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Cana as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Here's what circumcision was. In those days, in uh, ancient Near East, you didn't have a contract, you didn't sign a contract the way we sign contracts. In order to bind a contract in ancient Near Eastern tradition, you enacted the, the curse of violating the covenant itself. In other words, if you were getting into a covenant, you might pick up uh, handfuls of sand and pour it all over yourself and say, let it be to me my life like the dust of the sand blown away if I do not fulfill my covenant. Or you might cut up animals and walk through them and say, let it be to me like these animals if I fail to keep up the covenant. You see, that's how covenants were entered into. You would enact the curse that you're asking to come upon you. The significance of circumcision was, I promise to fulfill this covenant. And if I do not fulfill what I am called to do in this covenant, let me be cut off. Let me be removed. Let me be separated forever, in this case, from God, His promises, His presence, and His place. Let it be done to me. Let me be cut off forever. And that was the significance of, the circ of circumcision as, as the covenant symbol in the Abrahamic covenant of covenant. So for the Jewish people, circumcision was the sign of their covenant participation. But here's the problem. They treated circumcision as if it were covenant participation. Let me illustrate by analogy. If you see, if you're taking your family to vacation and you see a Disneyland sign, how many of you would say, Disneyland, there it is. Yeah, okay, stand in line, kids, stand in line. We're going to go on a ride. It's going to be fun. Just stand right here and we'll wait. Disneyland right here. None of you would do that. Why? Because you know the sign and the thing it indicates are not the same. But that's exactly what the Jews were doing. That's exactly what we do with things like baptism or the fact that I walk down the aisle at 10 or I partake the Lord's Supper. We think the sign is the actual thing rather than merely pointing to it. And this is what Paul's getting at in verses 26 to 29 of Romans chapter 2. The outward sign is not the point. And he actually says in verse 29, but a circumcision of the heart. In other words, you're obeying the very words of God from the very essence of who you are. 
You're not merely going through the religious rituals that do not change the heart because they don't even involve the heart in any way. How often we go into autopilot. How many times have you taken the Lord's Supper and you were just looking at, wow, the light's out up there or that guy's wearing something funny. I got to dip this in there. What? Right? How often we sing that God is king and we're going to live our lives on his word and we're, our minds are drifted away. We're on autopilot. Rituals don't require the heart, just muscle memory. But here's, friends, here's the million-dollar question. Here's the million-dollar question. Did Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or anyone ever actually obey the covenant? Has anyone ever walked blamelessly before God? No. But we just read in just 17.1, that's the covenant. Walk blamelessly before me. So the question is, why does God have anyone at all? Why are there any people of God? Because nobody's kept the covenant, not even Abraham. And here's the answer. The answer comes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. And honestly, it's one of those verses you read and you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I'm just going to move past that. But, but this is what it is. Here it is. Paul writes, In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. So there's that same symbol. The body of flesh is being put off. How does this happen? By the circumcision of Christ. Friends, what Paul is saying here is on the cross, Jesus was cut off. On the cross, Jesus was getting the consequence of our breaking covenant with God. On the cross, he was being removed, separated from God. That's why Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 53, he was cut off from the land of the living. Friends, as we looked at these three major sections in um, passages in Romans 4, if we count next week, it's all about God's judgment on humanity. But what Colossians 2 is reminding us, is telling us, is that Jesus himself was judged. Jesus Christ is the judge who is judged on our behalf. You see, religion isn't enough because at the end of the day, it, it cannot change your heart. If anything, merely going through the, the ritual practice can actually harden your heart because you're just going through the practice of it and missing the actual true ritual of Christianity, which is daily repentance because you know the only reason that you're not being cut off, that you're not being separated, that you're not being removed from God is because Jesus was. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. It's because we didn't keep the covenant. And so he gets cut off because that was the agreement with Abraham. You want to be my people? Then this is the covenant. If you don't walk blamelessly before me, you are forever cut off and removed. And yet nobody ever did. But Jesus did, and he was cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me it's so that none of us would have to be when we put our trust saying, I can't walk blamelessly, but you did. Would you do it on behalf of me? See, friends, religion is when we focus our, our, our affections, our mind, and our actions on what we do, 
The gospel is when we focus our affections, our mind, and our actions on what he already did. And that changes your heart. That's how your heart changes. Not by you going through rituals, but by putting your affections, your intellect, your volition on the work of Christ and what he's done for us. And it changes your heart radically. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Lord, as, as high and as impossible it is, you did not lower the standard of holiness. We would not want that. We would not want to live in a world where injustice is allowed, where evil is allowed, where wickedness is allowed. We long and cry for a world of righteousness and peace. But the problem is we traffic in unrighteousness. We thrive in wickedness. And we can't change it. And yet you sent your son, a second Adam, the last Adam, to fulfill all the requirements of the law on our behalf so we could be changed. Thank you that you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Thank you for sending your son on behalf of any man, woman, or child who would say, that is what I trust. Thank you that you change our hearts as we focus our lives on what you have done, not what we do. And Lord, I just pray that you would change us continually over and over and over again, that the beauty of the gospel would pump through our veins, would fill our lives, and broaden our vision for the world. And we pray these things and thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.